I looked today, and this session we start tonight in the Gospels will be the 58th session we've had in the Gospels. So when you figure the breaks that we've had in between, et cetera, et cetera, it's probably been a year and a half going on two years just trying to get through the Gospels, and we're not done yet. I'd love to tell you that that's being very meticulous. I'm just slow. That's all I can tell you. I'm just slow. There's just so much here. When I really started this, how long has it been ago? It's been three years at least, if not longer. Uh, when I started this, my intention was to do this in a year. I was just going to kind of skim through the books, give you the highlights. And then in Genesis, I started getting into these stories. And I love a good story. And so the more I dug into the stories, the more I wanted to stop and camp out and dig into those stories. And, and it seems like the longer we're going through this study, the slower I'm getting. So it'll probably be this way until we get through Acts, and then we'll speed it up a little bit because we'll be talking less about stories and more about some theology and some principles, and we'll, we'll speed that up a little bit. But it's going to take us a while to get through this and then to get through Acts. But I'm glad you're sticking with it. I hope you're excited about it. Uh, my granddaughter, the first of the month, she's four years old, and she was getting ready to go back to school. She goes to Mother's Day out here. And she was getting ready to go back to school, or go to preschool here. And she told her mom that she was so excited about going back to school, she could taste it. <laughs> I don't expect you to be that excited, but I hope you're excited to be here, all right? So let's, let's catch up. Let's do a quick recap of uh, last week. We, we did one story last week, which tells you why it's taken us so long to get through this. Uh, we talked about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. This is a very deep and intense story, and we spent a lot of time on it, so uh, we were pretty extensive in our coverage. So I can't tell you everything. We can't go back and recap everything. So if you weren't here, go check it out online. You can find these videos by going to YouTube and going to Warren Baptist, and there'll be a YouTube channel for Warren Baptist. You can find Sunday messages, Wednesday messages, men's forum messages. You can find all kinds of stuff there. Uh, or you can go to our website, and go to media, and go to Wednesday messages, and you can find those there. Um, so there's a lot of ways you can find it. I will warn you, though, if you go to check out last week's message, we had a problem with the audio. You can hear it, but it's just not, it sounds like it's kind of in the distance, so you have to listen a little harder for it. We had a, a technical difficulties last week, but hopefully we've got that fixed. So if you want the in-depth version of this story, go back to last week and watch the video. Let me give you kind of a recap of it. Uh, Here's what we know. We know that Lazarus, somebody that Jesus loved, was sick. He was ill. And Mary and Martha, his sisters, sent messengers to Jesus saying, hey, this one you love is ill. And Jesus tells them, hey, don't worry about it. This illness will not lead to death. It's meant to bring glory to God. And so the messengers go back thinking, hey, he's going to get better. And and Jesus waits two days before he goes to see him. And, and it made it sound like he was going to just wait until Lazarus got better and went to see him. But that's not what was going on. Uh, he waited until Lazarus died to see him. It's like, you're, it's like calling your doctor and saying, I'm deathly ill. And he says, well, let me know when you're dead and then I'll be there. You know, that would have been the kind of the same thing. And so he waits intentionally until Lazarus dies before he goes back. And, uh, and, and, and his disciples are saying, hey, wait a minute, you just said he was just sleeping. So if he's just sleeping, he's going to wake up. Why go there? And on top of that, we have to go to Judea. They're trying to kill you in Judea. You want to walk into that hornet's nest? Let him wake up and be okay. And Jesus has to be really blunt with them to say that Lazarus is dead. Which again, in their heads, probably thinking, well, then why go? If he's dead already, why go and risk being killed in Judea? Uh, while this is going on, back at the ranch in Bethany in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, it's chaotic. 
Because in that culture, when you mourn or when you grieve, it, it, it's loud. It's an aggressive, animated grief. And people come from all over to grieve with you. And so it's chaotic. And somebody comes to Martha and says, hey, Jesus is on his way. And she slips out and goes to meet him, meets him before he gets to the village. And she tells him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, which we said, gives you two, two presuppositions that she was working off of. One was that Jesus had to be present to heal somebody, which is not true. And two was that once they were dead, there was nothing he could do. Again, which is not true. And Jesus tries to get her, her focus off of the situation and on him. And Jesus says, you know, he's going to rise from the dead. And Martha says, I know in the resurrection, in the last day he will. He'll get up with everybody else. And Jesus, again, trying to get her, her eyes off the situation and on him says, I am. Which is the statement that God told who? Moses. When Moses said, what's your name? God said, I am. Jesus tells to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus is basically saying, take your eyes off of this hopeless situation and keep them on me. And they have a little dialogue about this. Martha confesses that he is the son of God, the ones that come. And then Martha goes back home and sends Mary. Mary gets there, same question or same statement. If you'd have been here, he'd still be alive. And Jesus is looking at all these crowds. And he's looking at this grief and this wailing and this sorrow and this hopelessness. And scripture says he basically churns on the inside and he weeps. So he says, where have you put him? And they take him to the tomb. They think he's going to pay his respects. But he rocks their boat when he gets there and says, move that stone out of the way. Martha, being the pragmatist that she is, says, you know, he's been in there four days, dead, he's decomposing, it's not going to smell good. Like I told you, I love the King James, because the King James says, he stinketh. And, uh, and that doesn't deter Jesus. Jesus said, hey, remember the conversation we just had about me being the resurrection and the life? Didn't I tell you? And so she backs off. They roll the stone away. Jesus prays a loud, loud prayer, not because God is death, but because he wanted to make sure the people heard it over the weeping and over the wailing. And then after praying that prayer, he calls for Lazarus to come forth. He calls in a loud voice, again, not because Lazarus wouldn't be able to hear him, because Lazarus would hurt him if he whispered. But he calls out a loud voice, and Lazarus comes out. Now, remember, he's wrapped in strips of cloth, so he's not just walking out. He's hobbling, trying to get out of this cave. And Jesus tells the people around him, take the grave clothes off, set him free. And that's where the story ends. Again, I told you last week, I would love to know more of the story. I want to know what Lazarus had to say about the experience. I want, there's all kinds of questions I have, but we don't get the answers. Jesus just lops off the story right there. So then we went to these takeaways. We'll go through these really quickly. Never forget that Jesus is calmly certain in the midst of our uncertainty. When we are most fretful, most uncertain, he is calmly certain. And, and we have to rely on that. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it's doing us any good. But he is never taken off guard. He's never caught by surprise. He's never wringing his hands. He always knows what's happening. So when they come and say, Lazarus is ill, he's calmly certain. When he waits until Lazarus is dead, he's calmly certain. When he goes to the chaos of the grief, he's calmly certain. He is that way always. That never changes. All right, so that was the first takeaway. Second takeaway we had. When God is slow in answering our desperate prayers, it is, doesn't mean he doesn't care. It means he knows something we don't. And we like to be on the know on everything, and we just can't, and we're not going to be. But when God is slow to answer our prayers, and he will be, it's not because he doesn't care, it's because he knows something we don't. That's probably what Martha and Mary thought at one time. It's what the people around him thought. The people around him said, you know, he can raise a, a stranger he can take a stranger and give them their sight. Why can't he raise his best friend? He knew something they didn't. 
Another takeaway. From our perspective, hardships and problems and losses, they're just bad. But from God's perspective, they're tools with hidden benefits. Now, I I would not tell you to go to your friend who just lost one of their family members to death and say, hey, I know this looks bad, but really this is just a tool with benefit. Do not do that. And do me a favor, the next time somebody's going through a terrible situation or a death or something, do not quote to them Romans 8.28. Just do not quote that to them. The verse says, we know that all things work together for those that love God. They don't want to hear that. Is it correct? Absolutely, it's correct. But it's not the right timing. You know, you can say the right things at the wrong time and it doesn't do any good. And so when someone's suffering like that, do not say, hey, all things work together for those who love God. If you're in that situation, you don't want to hear that verse. There's other verses you need to hear other than that one. And I'll guarantee you down the line somewhere, that person will go, yeah, Romans 8, 28, that makes sense. But not then, not there. Uh, That just does more damage than what it's worth. Can you tell that's a soapbox for me? It just just doesn't work. When my dad passed away, I was uh, 18 when my dad died. And uh, he died on a Thursday. And on Friday, my best friend, we lived way out in the country, And so my best friend drove out in the country and picked me up and took me to town. We went to a football game. We drove around. He didn't say probably a half a dozen words to me. It was the best thing ever. It's the best thing he could have done. He didn't need to give me answers. He didn't need to give me solutions. He didn't need to try to encourage me. just needed to be there. If you doubt that strategy, go to Job and look at Job's friends. The best thing they did is when they sat with him and said nothing. It's when they opened their mouth that things started going south. And uh, just be there. Just have a ministry of presence. I have no idea how I got from, there to, from here to there, but let's go to another takeaway. Jesus does not give us resurrection and new life. He is our resurrection and new life. And so don't look for ways to improve your situation. Look for ways to improve your relationship with him. If you improve your relationship with him, the circumstances, the situation will take care of themselves, even if they don't change. So, it's Martha wanted him, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Fix the situation. Because she thought Jesus would raise him from the dead. Jesus said, no, you got it wrong. I'm not going to give him resurrection and life. I am the resurrection and life. Focus on me. So in your situations, don't look for him to improve your situation. Improve your relationship with him. All right. Despite our difficulty, you can be assured of the fact that Jesus is not only aware of your desires, he deeply, he feels deeply with you and for you. In other words, sometimes God can just feel so distant. And he's not. That's our perspective. That's our feeling. He's not. And uh, even though he stayed in Bethany until Lazarus died, he still came. Even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, he still wept and cried. He's still very much in tune with what you and I are feeling and how we're struggling and our losses and our griefs and our hurts and our sorrows and our angers. He gets it. So don't, don't, be, don't let anything convince you that he doesn't. There are two necessary components to addressing a problem. First, there's the feelings, and then there's the fixing, and both are important. You need to do both. The feelings are important. You can't ignore them. That's why Jesus weeps. I always tell people in my counseling office, God gave you tear ducts. He expects you to use them. They're necessary equipment. They're not just fluff. But then there comes a time when you can't let your feelings drive you. You have to get up and do something. And it's a balance, and it's a tricky balance, but you need both. Last takeaway, and then we'll move into something new. Jesus brings people from death to life. And then he uses us to help them to shed their grave clothes. He doesn't use us to bring them from death to life. Even our witness does not bring them from death to life. His spirit does that. But after someone comes from death to life, then we get to help with them with shedding the grave clothes. It's called discipleship. It's part of discipleship. 
So it's really important. All right, any questions about that as we race through it? All right, let's do something new tonight. Turn to John. Go to John chapter 11. We're going to follow up this story about Jesus raising Lazarus. And we're going to start with this, the Sanhedrin's plot against Jesus. The Sanhedrin's plot against Jesus. You see Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. It was important. I mean, my guys, he raised some from the dead. But not just for the miracle. That story's important not just because he raised someone from the dead miraculously, but it's important because it stirred up a hornet's nest. When Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, it's a defining moment. And it stirs up everything. I mean, he's done a lot of miracles, but none of them has stirred up the hornet's nest that this one stirs up. Look at John 11, start in verse 45. 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, because he had raised Lazarus, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered to council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, so let's stop right there. When you raise someone from the dead, it's going to cause a stir. I mean, that's just kind of hard to hide. It's going to cause a stir. And it did. And some of the people came to believe in Jesus from that, but some of them went straight to the Pharisees about it. They were not, I mean, they couldn't deny the miracle, but they were not convinced that this was a good thing. And so the chief priests of the Pharisees, they kind of call a, an emergency meeting. And the first thing they say is, what are we going to do? Jesus raising Lazarus put pressure on them. When Jesus raised Lazarus, that was something that could not be denied. I mean, it's one thing to help somebody get better, but he could have gotten better on his own. But people just don't come back to life after they're dead. So this had to be dealt with. You couldn't ignore this. And it put pressure on the Pharisees and on the Sadducees. And, and so they, they call this meeting. Now, why is, why is raising Lazarus such a problem for them? Because it should be a good thing, right? Why is it such a problem? You would think after somebody raised from the dead, you'd call a party and celebrate. That's not what they did. Why? You didn't think I was going to talk the whole time, did you? Why? Pardon? Abnormality. What about abnormality? Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. Who of us would be used to having somebody raise somebody from the dead? So, yeah, that's an abnormality. It creates a power struggle. What kind of power struggle? Jesus was kind of stealing their press so to speak. Yeah. Well, it really, it kind of tells us right there, it, there were two reasons this caused such a problem. First, their fear is that everyone is going to follow Jesus. Why is that a problem for them? Because they do not believe Jesus is the Messiah. He can't be. The Messiah is going to bring in royalty and power, and he's going to kick out the Romans and, and set up a new kingdom. And Jesus is a peasant who doesn't have a penny to his name, and he has no army. They cannot believe that this guy is the Messiah. And so they don't want everybody following them because they're afraid everyone's going to be deceived from their point of view. That's the first problem for them. But the second problem is probably the worst problem Second, they're afraid that the Romans, who were currently ruling the territory, were going to get wind of this, and they were going to hear, hey, these people are following Jesus, and they're not following the religious leaders, and there's this faction, and, and, and if it gets into riots, and the Romans will come, and they'll basically take away our place and take away our nation. 
Now, the Romans, here's the deal with that. The Romans had given the religious leaders the right to rule their people. They could rule. They could enforce their laws. They could. The only thing they couldn't do is they couldn't have an insurrection, and they couldn't have an assassination. They couldn't kill anyone. They couldn't execute anyone. They could not have an insurrection, couldn't have an execution. Those were only for the Romans to do. But the Romans wanted people, they wanted peaceful territories. They wouldn't have to deal with rabble-rousers and problems. They wanted the territory to be peaceful. And so the religious leaders said, you know, we've got this crowd that's beginning to zealously follow this guy. And if, if it riots and if, if unrest breaks out, the Romans are just going to come in and we're going to lose our place. We're going to lose our nation. We're going to lose everything. And uh, the way the text reads kind of leads you to believe that, that, that they weren't completely, what's the word I'm looking for, sincere in what they were asking. I mean, what's, what strikes you from their reasoning here? What stands out to you? Yeah, they're going to lose their position. We're going we're, we're to lose our place. It's very anti what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And the, the religious leaders said, you know, we must increase and he must decrease. And so it's, very, uh, it's a very polar opposite. Uh, they're, very, they're being very self-centered. Now, they're, they're afraid people will follow Jesus rather than them. They're afraid they're going to lose their place of importance. Now, here's the question. Do you think they saw themselves as being self-serving? When you are worried about something, do you see yourself being self-serving? No way. I always want to think I'm looking out for the good of others. I'm looking out for the best. I'm looking out for me. Most of us got married for self-serving reasons. If you'd have asked me when I got married, why are you getting married? I love her so much. I want to make her life good, and I just want to do what I can for her. You know, deep down inside what I was thinking, she can do so much for me. You know, she can make my life so better. It's very self-serving. And, and so they would have told you, no, we're looking out for the good of the nation. This guy's not the Messiah. We can't let people be fooled and deceived. We're, but they have a very self-serving approach to things. So it's at this point in this meeting, they've called this special meeting, and, and everybody's going, what do we do, what do we do? At this point, the high priest stands up, and uh, he speaks. So look at John 11, look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord. This is an interesting verse, really interesting verse. He did not say this of his own accord. John is doing some commentary here. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather to one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Very, very interesting verse. Basically, Caiaphas stands up and says, look, don't be wowed by these miracles. You don't understand the gravity of the situation here. If, if, if something's not done, the Romans are going to come in and quiet this ruckus, which means we're going to lose our way of life. And if that happens, they will probably remove us from our positions, and that'll be the end of the nation. I mean, this is what Caiaphas is telling them. So what does Caiaphas think he's doing? Yeah. Yeah. Caiaphas thinks he's saving the people. He thinks he's looking out for the greater good. But what is he really doing? Yes. Does it not bug you that someone who wants to kill Jesus, God uses to prophesy truth? That just seemed backwards to you? That just seems 
I mean, you don't use the bad guys to do the good stuff, do you? But this is what he's doing. He thinks he's looking out for the good of the people. And unbeknownst to him, he's speaking a bigger, he's speaking the gospel. And he did not even have a clue about it. I'm currently rereading a book. Yes, ma'am. Absolutely, we're going to get into that. That's why the raising Lazarus from the dead was such a, a pivotal point in history here because it was at that point that they decide we got to kill him. Now that had, I mean, they wanted him out of the way. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted to silence him, but they had never said, let's kill him until this. And raising Lazarus from the dead is what pushed them to that. It's, a, it's, a, it, it's fascinating because I always read that story about Jesus raising someone from the dead. But it was way more than that. It was, and and Jesus knew this. Jesus knew, if I raise Lazarus from the dead, this is what's going to happen. And he did it anyway. It won't be the first time God's done something like that. God knew in the Garden of Eden, if I create Adam and Eve, here's what's going to happen. And he did it anyway. I I, I am rereading a book called The Tale of Three Kings. If you've never read it, I greatly encourage you to read it. It's an easy read, a short read. If you want to, get it in Audible and listen to it. It's just, it's really great in Audible. Um, But the, the author is making a point that God does use... He, he does choose and anoint people and use them for mighty deeds on the outside when they're empty on the inside. Case in point, Saul. And then he makes this point because you don't always know whether the king is a good one or a bad one, whether he's anointed by God or not, and you never get to know. But he makes the point that God will use the Sauls in the world to boil out the Saul in us. It's what he did with David. God allowed Saul to persecute David Because he was boiling the Saul out of David. And so, if God will anoint a Saul to do his work, he can prophesy through a Pharisee. Very fast. I mean, it's really easy to read over that quickly and easily and not get the depth of what's there. So, here's the final result of raising Lazarus. Here's what happens. Look at verse 53 of chapter 11. From that time on, here it is. From that time on, they made plans to put him to death. That was the deciding factor for them. Isn't it interesting? The deciding factor to kill somebody is because he gave life. Very. And you know, when we get wrapped up in this stuff, we don't make sense. We just don't. I had so many people in my counseling office, I'll get them to tell me the story and spell it out, and they'll say, well, now that I sound it, say it out loud, it sounds a little silly. It sounds ludicrous that they decide to put somebody to death because he raised somebody to life. But it's at that point that happens. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. So the result of raising Lazarus from the dead was they decided they needed to kill him and he could no longer move freely in Jerusalem or in the Judea area. Not until the final week of his life when he comes back in at Passover. Those are some strange consequences for raising someone from the dead. But this is what happens. Uh, So at this point... We're going to leave the book of John. We're going to go back to the book of Luke. Go to Luke 11. Turn to Luke 11. There's, a, there's some few stories that take place between this time and when Jesus moves back into Jerusalem for the final week. So if you'll look at Luke 11, uh, excuse me, Luke 17, verse 11. Go to Luke 17. We'll start in verse 11. And here's what we're going to be looking at. Jesus heals 10 lepers on his way to Jerusalem. All right? So let's look at, uh, let's look at 11, starting in verse 11. 
On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Now, he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's, got, he's in Galilee. He's trying to get Jerusalem. And what lays in between Galilee and Jerusalem? Samaria. And we've already talked about this before, about the Samaritans. We'll talk some more about that in a minute. Verse 12, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, let's stop there for a minute. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's in between, like we said, he's in between Galilee, in between Galilee and Jerusalem. He's probably planning on going through Samaria. And remember the first time he did that, everybody wigged out about it because Jews just did not go through Samaria. What do you remember about Samaria? Why was that so? Say again louder. That's right. It goes all the way back to after Solomon died. Way back in the Old Testament. There's Saul, there's David, there's Solomon. After Solomon dies, the kingdom splits to a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. The problem with that is a good Jew has to go to the temple to worship. The temple's in the southern kingdom. It's in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom was afraid that if they did that, they just wouldn't come back. So they had to set up a system of worship on their own, which wound up being idol worship. Everything God was against. Not only that, but they started intermarrying with people in the region. And it's not that God's against intermarriage. He's against interfaith when the faiths don't match up. And, and so, so the people of Samaria were seen as, as idol worshipers. They were seen as half-breeds, which is a terrible word, but that's what they were seen as. And so a good Jew would not even go through Samaria. They would go all the way around. Now, it's one thing if you're in a car and you're going to drive around Augusta to get to South Augusta. It's another thing if you're on foot. If you're on foot, you want to go the shortest distance. You want to go a straight line, but not if it meant going through Samaria. You would go around. This is the context for this story. Uh, so Jesus is entering this village, and there's ten lepers who stand off in a distance. Why did they stand off at a distance? You, either talk, you all either talk really low because you're afraid that the answer might be wrong, or it's time for me to get hearing aids. One or two, and it may be the latter, actually. Speak up. They're unclean. Okay? They're unclean. What, first of all, what is leprosy? It's a skin disease. Matter of fact, it's a variety of skin disease. I mean, it's a continuum of skin disease. You could have psoriasis, and that would be considered leprosy. And, and they were assuming that leprosy was highly contagious. And if you live in a culture where there's no doctors, there's no medicine, you can't afford to catch stuff. And so if you were diagnosed with leprosy and the people that diagnosed you would be the high priest, then you had to move out of town. You couldn't even live in the village. You had to live out in the outskirts by yourself. And because you were probably contagious, or at least it was believed that you were contagious, if anybody started coming close to you, you had to holler out, unclean, unclean, just to give them a warning so that they didn't get close to you. Can you imagine what kind of life that was? Can you imagine you're living isolated, you're on the outskirts, you, people that you want to see and love can't get close to you. You can't let anybody get close to you. Imagine what kind of life that was. These are the people that stand off at a distance and holler at Jesus. And, uh, and the lepers ask Jesus to have mercy on him, hoping that he'll heal them. So Jesus tells them to go and show themselves to the priest. Why? Any ideas? Yes, the priests were the, kind of the official word. The priests were the ones that diagnosed you, whether this was leprosy or not. The priests were also the ones that would determine whether you truly had been healed of leprosy, whether you were quote-unquote clean. And there's all kinds of rules about how to diagnose that, and you can read them. 
Oh, gracious, is it in Leviticus? It's one of those books that you never read, you skip over, because it's just, uh, it's in there. Uh, so he tells them, go to the priest. Now, interesting thing was, they were not healed when he told them, go to the priest. I mean, if you think about it, they're not healed, because it says that they were healed on the way. So that's kind of an act of faith right there. You know, I'm not healed, and they say, hey, go show yourself to the priest. Well, show them what? They've already seen this. They don't want to see this again. But they go. They go. The healing occurs while they're on the way. Now, their healing was certainly significant. I mean, any kind of healing is significant. But what comes next is really the point of the story. Look at verse 15. Luke 17, verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now listen to this last phrase. And he was a Samaritan. It's, it's just like saying, and he was Adolf Hitler. Let's keep reading. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, were not, ten lepers, uh, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your, faith, uh, go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is another story just like the Good Samaritan story where the hero is their enemy. I love when Jesus just messes us up like that. And, and it would have rocked them that the foreigner came back and showed gratitude. Which, which the implication is the other nine were Jews. And the Jews didn't come back and show that. Uh, and it's a shocking punchline. It really is. For people of that day, it's not so shocking for us, but for people of that day it was. And why do you think that it's that shocking? We may not think it is, but think of it this way. Think of the person you most dislike or hate. I know we're not supposed to say that stuff, but you got them. We all do. So think of that person. Is it easy for you to see them welcomed into the presence of God? Is that a picture you'd rather not conjure up in your head? This would have been how it was for the people viewing this and, and hearing this. It, it, they don't want to hear that their enemy has received faith that's made them whole, but the other nine, they don't want to hear that. That's the significance of the story. Again, it's not the healing, although that's a big deal. It's that piece right there. All right, I have a feeling we're not going to get through everything I wanted to, but let's go a little bit further. Let's look at this. Jesus talks about the advent of the kingdom, the advent of the kingdom. Still in Luke 17, look at verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. So he's talking to the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that it can be observed. Nor will it, you, they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In the midst of you. Now, we don't know the context in which the Pharisees asked this question. We don't know. But more than likely, they were referring to the political overflow. When they want to know when the kingdom's coming, they want to know when do we get our nation back? When do we get to rule? When do we get another king and an army? And they want to know that. So, so they're not going to like what they see anyway. Jesus tells them two things. Two things. One, the kingdom of God would not look like they expect it to. And two... The kingdom of God is already there. 
you know those answers were not satisfying to them. They just, that's not what they were asking. That's not what they wanted to hear. They just were not satisfying. But then Jesus turns from talking to the Pharisees and he turns to his disciples and he talks to them about the kingdom. And as I read this next section, listen for words that would describe the kingdom of God. You might even want to jot them down, but listen to the words that describe the kingdom. Starting in verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of these days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Verse 25, but first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And there's a great subplot in here we can't say a whole lot about. But when you want to experience great things, I think you can probably say, but first, you must suffer many things. We don't want that to be a part of the equation. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the day of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, the fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is out in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you that in that night there will be two in one bed, And one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's a strange response. So in all of that section, what do you know about the coming of the kingdom? Just in general, what do you know? We don't know when. So it's going to be unexpected. Yeah, it'll be sudden. What else do you know? A lot of pain and suffering at that time. We know that it'll be visible. From, from what we read here, it'll be visible. And it'll be global. Not just visual to somebody in a certain area or some people in a certain It would be visual globally. This is what we know about the coming. That it will be unexpected. That it will be sudden. That it will be visual. That it will be global. And so, of course, you know, the Pharisees, the disciples hear this in a way they want to know the when and the where of all of it. And basically this real cryptic answer of Jesus, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. He's basically saying when the time is close, there will be signs. You'll see signs. The problem is Jesus' version of close and ours are two different things. We do not work with the same reference that he works. You know, Einstein tells us that time is relative and and For him, time exists all as one whole at once. If this is the beginning of time and this is the end of time, he exists in all of it at the same time. So there's no way we can comprehend what he means when he says close. But he says there will be signs. There will be signs. All right. I have enough time. I might have enough time to finish tonight. Let's move on to something different. Uh, Jesus tells... Some parables on prayer. These are two parables 
that speak of prayer. Now, he starts with the parable of the persistent widow. Look at Luke 18. Look at verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Now, unlike a lot of the parables, he basically gives us the meaning and the purpose of this parable up front. You know, it's like, here's the answer to the test, you know, before you take it. He gives the meaning up front. What's the purpose of the parable? Look at it to text. What's the purpose? Oh, this is not a trick question. Just look at the text. What's the purpose? He's that to the effect that. That's right. That's right. He tells them the parable because he wants them to know they should always pray and not lose heart. So then he tells the parable. Look at verse 2. In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Okay, so here's the question. Is Jesus basically saying that to get anything out of God, we just got to wear him down? Because that's what it sounds like, right? Sounds very much like that. Here's the key to understanding this parable. This is a parable of contrast. It's not a parable of similarity. It's not a parable that says that, God is like this unjust judge. It's a parable of showing the differences between them. When you get that in your head, then the parable kind of opens up a little bit more. A really bad judge who neither fears God nor respects people versus a really good God who, tr- who is true to himself and loves people. That's the contrast. Now, with that contrast in mind, here comes verse 7. Let's go back to verse 6. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge says. And will not God, here's the contrast, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will give justice to them speedily. He'll give justice to them speedily. So Jesus is pointing out that if a persistent woman can wear down a badge judge who doesn't care about the rule or justice or anybody else, if that widow can do that, how much further will we get in persistent prayer with a heavenly father who loves us and wants to give us our heart's desire? You know, if persistence can wear down a a bad judge... How much more will persistence do with a loving father? That's the contrast in the parable. His delay is patience. Yes. And 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 so when we pray. If we're praying repeatedly and repeatedly and persistently because we think we gotta, we got to make our case and we got to just wear him down to get him to give what. The problem is we view God's character completely wrong. But when you view God's character as a loving father who knows what we need and who longs to give us what we need, then we pray persistently not because we're trying to wear him down, but because we're persistently coming to our father. And when we trust his character, we can accept the outcomes a whole lot better if they're not what we want. Yes, ma'am. When we're praying, we should be not praying the same asking over and over again, but pray thanking him, knowing what he's doing in that situation. Yes, yeah. uh, She said we shouldn't be praying the same thing over and over and over again, like we don't trust him necessarily, but thanking him for the fact that he hears and he's going to answer one way or the other. Absolutely. Uh, let's, get, let's get this other parable in. The next parable is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Okay, so again, Jesus tells the purpose of the parable right up front. Look at verse 9. 
He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So the purpose of this parable is to speak to those who felt like they were self-righteous and they had it all together and was treating everyone else with contempt. All right? Here's the parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Big spread, big contrast between the two. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed, Thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, here's the contrast, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Rather than the other. So you have these, the, the differences are stark between the two. Now, look at how he ends the parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled And everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the punchline of the parable. We said this in another lesson one time. It's better to humble yourself than to have somebody else do it for you. Right? And and Jesus is pointing out this. I mean, Scripture tells us that pride comes before a fall. But God gives grace to the humble. This is what this parable is about. Again, it's pointed at the Pharisees. I mean, he is just turning the heat up. If you want to get yourself killed, this is the way to do it. Because he is just raking them over the coals with this stuff. All right, we got to do the takeaways and get out of here because I have several takeaways. Here's the first one. Just because something is threatening to interfere with your agenda doesn't mean it's bad. Man, I wish I could learn this. Because every time something threatens my agenda, I assume automatically it's bad. And that could be everything from a flat tire to a bad diagnosis. But not everything that threatens our agenda is bad. Here's the next one. No matter what good you do, someone will find a way to criticize it. Just get used to it. If Jesus can raise somebody from the dead and catch criticism for it, yeah, you're going to also. See, no good deed goes unpunished. No good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> so just get used to it. If you're a people pleaser, if you need to hear good stuff when you do stuff, you're going to have to work on that because I don't care what good you do, somebody will find a way to criticize it. I posted a very, a very sweet innocent meme on social media the other day said something like uh, be the kind of person that makes other people believe in good people I mean what can you find wrong with that somebody did (laughs) just telling you okay next takeaway often the healing we seek occurs after we're actively doing God's will not before remember the lepers They were cleansed on the way doing what Jesus told them to do. Not before. And we want to know before, before we launch into. And and, and often what we're seeking from God doesn't happen while we're waiting. It happens when we're actively doing what he's told us to do. Then, not before. When God intervenes in your life, stop what you're doing and immediately express gratitude to him. Before doing anything else. Again, the one out of ten leper that stopped. I mean, he could have gone on to the priest, gotten cleared, been back to normal life. But, and you would want to do that. After living as a leper that long, man, the first thing you want to do is get cleared so you can get back to normal life. But he doesn't. He stops and turns and comes back. It's amazing how we pray for God to do things and pray for God to do things and he does them and we're so happy and we move on and we never say thank you. Those of you that raised kids, didn't sometime, you just wanted to hear an honest thank you. 
right? And isn't it frustrating when you don't get that? And yet we do that with God so often, you know? We do it now, our toddlers, our little kids, when somebody does something nice for them, we go, what do you say? What happens when we get older? Where did that go? So when God intervenes and does something for you, answers a prayer, whatever, or you see it, just stop and say, I get it. Thank you. Just, just stop and do that. Another takeaway. If you're looking for God's presence and work in your life, you can be assured of these two things. It won't look like you expect it to look like. And it's probably right in front of you already. Man, if we could just get a hold of this, it would revolutionize our lives. When you're looking for God's work in your life, his presence, his power, whatever, just assume, one, it's not going to look like you expect it to. And two, it's probably already right in front of you. Just look for it. Ask some questions. Another takeaway. We are to be persistent in prayer. Not to badger a response from an indifferent God, but to build a relationship with a caring God. We're still supposed to be persistent, but not to badger a God who doesn't care, but to build a relationship with one who does. Last takeaway. Comparing yourself to others will foster pride and bring about a dissatisfaction and destruction. It just does. It does it every single time. But comparing yourself to God will foster humility and bring about a grace and a growth. Question is, which are you prone to do? The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee compared himself to the tax collector and thought, doing pretty good. Now, I may be the only sinner in the room, but I'm betting there's some other people in this room that have looked at somebody and go, I'm doing better than they are. And when you do that, you foster pride, and eventually pride brings about a fall. It brings dissatisfaction. starts off with dissatisfaction. You know, if you believe everything you see on social media that all your friends and people are posting, you're going to be very dissatisfied with your life, you know? My kids don't look that good. My marriage doesn't look that happy. I don't get to take those kind of trips. On and on and on and go. It'll breed dissatisfaction. And then that dissatisfaction actually will take you to some destruction. But the tax collector compared himself to God. And when you compare yourself to God, you will always get your perspective right. You won't always like it, but you'll get it right. You will not come out on top. You cannot be boastful and prideful when you compare yourself to God. So it forces you to, into a stance of humility. And that stance of humility will actually bring about more grace and more growth. But we have to be honest about which one is typically us. Okay, we'll stop there tonight. Questions, comments? A step on your toes? Good, because I love company. Mine's been tromped on plenty this week through this text. Anybody? All right, let's pray and go home then. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for these people who love you and are seeking after you and who want to know more about you. Thank you for your word that reveals yourself and, uh, and does not just step on our toes, but stomps on our hearts sometimes, Father, because we want to see ourselves in some characters, and the truth of the matter is we're in the characters we don't want to see. Um, and you don't do that. You don't point out our pharisaical ways or our ways like Saul. You don't do that, Father, to be punitive or mean. You do that to bring about growth in us. Your word tells us that the truth will set us free. And when we can see the truth of ourselves in the text that we've been reading, even if it's not a pretty picture, it can set us free through Christ. And I pray that this week, as we go about our, our daily activities, that, 
something from these texts will jump back to mind that will change something according to what we've studied and will be just a little bit more free this week. And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.